What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Today, I'm talking to Jay Klaus. Jay first popped onto my radar when he posted on Indie Hackers that he sold his community to Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income. And you typically don't see communities get acquired. And that's because acquirers are really investors. They want to buy your thing, and then they want to see it get much, much bigger in the future. And communities are kind of a tricky beast where there's no guarantee they're still going to be good as they grow. In fact, a lot of communities get worse as they grow. So something that might be working really well at 100 people or 1,000 people might turn into complete and utter chaos at 10,000 people or 100,000 people. And so to be able to sell your community means that whoever's buying it has the utmost faith and trust in you, and they really think that you're a badass, and you're going to be able to not only grow this thing, but hold the ship together as it scales. And Jay is indeed a badass. So in this episode, we talk about his journey as a creator. We talk about uh, these new audio platforms, Clubhouse, Twitter Spaces, how to use those to build your audience. And we talk about the journey from basically making $0 as a creator to being 100% financially independent and able to do whatever you want. Enjoy the episode. I got like a million and one things I want to talk to you about, but you yeah. had like a, a, kind of a cool year. I mean, you described to me a few weeks ago that like this was your biggest year as a creator. You said you, you first hit, it's your first year where you hit six figures in revenue. It's cool if I share that. Can I say that? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Six figures in revenue as a creator. That's great. That's enough where you don't, you clearly don't have to work a job for the man. You can do whatever you want. That's true. And then I went and got a job for the man. Yeah. You got a job for the man, basically. <laughs> but like the good man, you know, there's like, there's like the bad man that you don't want to work for. And then there's Pat Flynn, who's like the, right. <laughs> the ideal sort yeah. of person to work with. So I guess that's the second exciting thing is that uh, you tweeted about this. You posted on Andy Hackers about this, that your community got acquired. And the exact way you phrased it in your tweet was, let me pull it up. You said that your virtual accelerator and private community just got acquired by Smart Passive Income. And we talked about this. So which one is more exciting to you, I guess, the fact that you had this huge year as a creator or the fact that despite having a huge year, you now technically have a job and your community got acquired? Oh man, it's it's tough to say. They're both equally exciting. They're, they both interplay so well. The, let's start with the creator side first because this is this is like crazy to me. I mean, for, for the last four years, I was trying to get to a point where I was like, okay, I want to be very comfortable independently and have a lot of optionality and really honestly even just like the last four months have been where that really really came on and then at the same time i i kind of unlocked that optionality like hit that mythical six-figure mark but the opportunity that i had with spi and what i could do there while also being encouraged by them to continue my creative work it was just like having my cake and eating it too it was it was amazing so is this what you mean when you say optionality? Like you don't want to have to quit anything or you want to have as many like possibilities? Like why why go for optionality? So I kind of, this this SPI thing happened like the perfect time where I was like, okay, well, I, I proved that I could do this and now I have this great financial economic engine of my own building over here that's growing an audience that's continuing to build upon itself. But at the same time, I see this really special opportunity at this point in time to focus what I've learned about building community inside of an even greater ecosystem to prove out a lot of the the theories that I have around community 
and serve even more people, which theoretically could also feed into some of the stuff that I'm doing. So it, it just felt like this is a really good fit for me. I remember um, I have a good friend, David Sherry. He, he and I have been good friends for a long time. He started Death to the Stock Photo. And he told me one time that he thought my superpower was building community. And this is like three or four years ago. And I just like wrote it off as like, yeah, but who cares about that? Like that's something I do and I like doing it and it powers stuff, but nobody cares about that. And now people care about that. Community's <laughs> big. Like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, now now this seems like something I can like really step into as a strength and step into it credibly and not feel like I'm fighting upwards to say like, pay attention to me for this. It's more like, I've done this. I'll write about this. You can pay attention if you want, but I'm like very confident that I can step into it and talk about these things. Right. I don't want to say sell out, <laughs> but why sell? Like why like you have you know, this entire creator life you built for yourself. You finally got to six figures in revenue. You've got maximum optionality. You can do anything that you want. You literally have no one who's telling you what to do. You can quit anything. You're totally free. How do you even think through whether or not you want to sell your community to an acquirer or stay independent and do other things? I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't shopping around. I wasn't seeing like, what would the market value of this thing be? Honestly, I had been working with the SPI team for like six months and we had the beginnings of something pretty special with SPI Pro. But I was a contractor and we were getting to a point where it's like, we were both looking at like, well, okay, so what happens now after this transition is or do you go to another contract? So you're supplementing like all of your creator stuff because uh, you also have like a podcast, you also sell courses and you've got a yeah. community. So you're supplementing that with doing contract work with SPI yeah. and presumably other clients too. And mostly SPI. They, I had mostly dialed back to just working with them and then earning enough of an income from my other stuff that, that was enough to get by. But it got to the point where Matt was like, well, what would it look like for you to join the team full time? Is that something that you'd be interested in? And I was like, ah, I don't know. I got too much stuff in flight. Like I got this community. I've got my own projects. It's all going really well. And he's like, well, we're really interested in this, this, and this. What, what if we acquired Unreal Collective? And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So you got a very uh, tangled web here of a million different things that you're doing. And I'm curious, like, how, did, how does it all start? If I want to be a creator like Jay Klaus, like... You know, what's the very first thing that you do? A podcast, a course, uh, blogging? Not a podcast. I love podcasting. I have a course on podcasting. But it, podcasting is a really long game. And it's good to get started now because it's going to take a while for you to build an audience for sure. But to me, you start with services. You start as a freelancer or you start if you have like some authority and some recognition and people who would already want to pay you for something. Unreal Collective, the accelerator program was basically a mastermind program. It was a coaching program. And in that, I got to scale my time across five people at a time, which was a pretty great hourly rate, which saved a lot of time and space for me to create these assets. Mm. So it's like being a like, service provider. Like, let's say you're a, a software engineer for like one company at a time. Like, you can make a decent amount of money, but not that much because it's one client at a time. Uh, but if you decide to like teach five people, you can bring them all into one community. You can basically charge five times as much because you got five people at a time. Uh, where do you get those first five people for Unreal Collective? Like, how did anyone even know that you were offering this thing and, and decide to pay for it? The first thing that I did was I did a a twelve week program for free for five people that I thought were working on something interesting that would stick with it and show up even though they weren't literally invested in it and would have interesting stories coming out of it. And so after I worked with those five people. I documented their stories and their progress. I put that into a sales page and then that became what I went out and, and had as social proof to do the first paid program. And even then for the first couple of cohorts, it was a lot of outbound emails, to be honest. Like I, I had already 
built a relationship over years with a lot of people in my own city who are business owners because I was organizing like startup weekends for years. And I sent an, a short email to people who I thought would be fun to work with, who I thought would benefit from the program. And I said, Hey, I have membership opening for unreal collective. It can help you go from a to B on what you're working on. I think it would really fit, fit you well, uh, zero pressure, zero expectation. But if you have any interest at all, let's get on a call like very short. And the win was let's get on a call. And then I would ask them a lot of questions about like, okay, so what's going on in your business? How are things going? What's a priority for you? They would talk and talk and talk in a good way. And I would learn a lot about their struggles and I could very quickly see like, oh, you're actually dealing with the exact same thing as Annette, who's also in this cohort. I think you would get a lot out of this. Would love to have you again, zero pressure expectation. Like all, I never hard sell anybody. I just affirm for them, like hearing your situation. I can tell you that this will work for you if you want to do it. And if you do, that'd be great. And that, and that worked for the most part. And then it got easier. Every, uh, following cohort got a little bit easier because there was more social proof. Like I did a really good job of capturing testimonials from almost everybody who went through the program and turning that into a success story for like everybody who went through the program and did a testimonial. So you go to the website and you're like, is, is Jay like just blowing smoke? Does this really work? And you're like, Oh, here are 40 people who already did this 12 week experience. And this is the results that they saw. This is great. But services income is always going to be the fastest way to income, but you need to embrace being a business owner. You need to embrace being like a freelance business owner so that you're actually getting yourself enough money and time to build the thing that you want to build. I love this like high touch model because a lot of people start and they just want to start at like step five. They're like, I'm building a scalable software product as an indie hacker. I'm like, that's really hard. You got to kind of like market it. Like people like, they don't really know why they should use your thing. And it's competing against all this other scalable software built by other people who have bigger teams than you and bigger budgets than you. But if you're just like literally reaching out to people one at a time and you can give them this like really crafted pitch, of like I know exactly what you're working on and I want to hear your, hear about your problems and your challenges. You're just going to be able to provide something way better than somebody who's trying to make some sort of one size fits all product. And you can also charge more out of the gate. Like you're probably charging at least a few hundred bucks or something, whether, uh, whereas yeah. like people with software try to charge, you know, five or 10 or 20 bucks a month. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I did the math in the beginning. I was like, if, if this is 12 weeks, which the program was, how much would I have to make from how many people and do this three times a year to get by if this was my only means of income? And I did the math. And over time, I literally doubled the prices. I started at, I think, $400 for 12 weeks of just the group calls. Mm. And at the end, it was $9.99 for the base level. But I knew that I was going to have to deliver this experience and this outcome for people. And I was going to be staring at them in the face for an hour every week for 12 weeks. I wasn't going to try to sell them into something that I didn't think was going to set them up for success. It's not going to be a fun time for anybody. And because it's a group call, if they're not having a good time, they could very well make it so that other people on the call weren't having a good time too. So you, you genuinely had to make sure that they were a good fit. And the right. best way to do that was to have these calls. Would you describe Unreal Collective as like, you've described it as an accelerator. You've described it as a community. I guess it is a community because kind of the value comes from the people on the call. It's not just you like monologuing at them and telling them what to do. They're each talking to each other. What would you say is something that you learned about community by running these communities that, you know, the average person doesn't understand. And, and the other reason that why it was a community was after the program, you were still invited to stay in the Slack channel and it was incredibly active. Like everybody who had gone through the program was still in there. And because it grew like 15 to 20 people at a time to answer your question, everybody got to know everybody really, really well. And it wasn't like all of a sudden 
the people who had invested a lot of time and energy into this community were now overwhelmed with a hundred new people who wanted to do things a different way or didn't know the etiquette. It was, it was all very smooth and slow and you can integrate people well. And so like, this is, this is the thesis of joining SPI is now that I've seen how to take small groups and build a community slowly and have high touch connection and make them really love it. How can I meet in the middle with a large audience and a larger community to try to scale that experience, which is like an inherently very difficult thing to do, but you have to have experience at the low end to be able to try. It's like you started your own miniature like Y Combinator. Like I'm going to get a bunch of founders and entrepreneurs and put them together in these little cohorts and help each other and connect them to each other. And you don't need like a huge brand to do that. You just need to like these sales emails and your own personal rep reputation and kind of these uh, testimonials from people who've done it before. And then it just becomes more and more valuable the more people you get into it because like we said, they're all in the Slack group. And then I think there's so many, there's like so many ways to capitalize on that. Like you can just charge basically a straight fee like you were doing to different people. There are also these like really huge communities. I don't know if you're familiar with like these executive peer groups. There's YPO, uh, Young Presidents Organization, EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. And like people are like often like sleeping on how big these things can get with their membership fees. So for example, YPO, it's like only for CEOs. You have to be a CEO to join. They have 30,000 members and it's like $3,500 a year or something to be a member. And the people who join are all CEOs. They're all super rich. So they're like, of course I'll join this thing. And they're making, that's like a hundred million dollars basically a year that they're making from a community that's really, really scaled up. Entrepreneurs organization is kind of the same. I think they're also like, you have to be a founder or an owner of a company that's doing like a million in revenue or something, but it's like 2,500 bucks a year. They have tens of thousands of people, same thing. And then they have kind of like the scaled out community experience like you did, where they just have like these discussions with like five to 10 people. And they train like volunteers from within the community to lead these discussions. So it's super scaled up and they, they just make a ton of money and also provide a ton of value from people who want to like meet their peers. So like that's kind of one way to scale community. Some of the things you're pointing out is like underlying important things to understand. Knowing who your people are and what like their threshold for what meaningful versus non-meaningful membership dues is, right? So like with Unreal, because my people were... Um, early stage creative service providers, I'm not going to be able to charge $3,500 a year. This is not going to work. There's like an inherent ceiling on what I can do for membership dues. So that's important to know if you're trying to build a paid community is like, who are these people and what can they actually pay? Because there, there needs to be a match of price to value to like where they are. As far as like how to scale things, I really do think that you need to put a lot of energy into very unscalable aspects of it. Like one of the things that I, that I, call back to a lot is the idea that when we think about building an online community, we aren't thinking often enough about like, well, what worked offline? Because if you start to think about your online community as a meetup that happened in your hometown, when people show up to that meetup, they probably drove across town. They probably put 15 to 20 minutes into getting there. As soon as they get in the door, the first thing they do is they look around for people they know and are familiar with. So that they start to feel comfortable in the space. But if they don't see that, they'll probably stick around because they already made the trip in an online community. If they show up and they look around and they don't see anybody they know, and they don't necessarily feel welcomed right away. It's so easy to leave. So easy to leave. And you never, you might not even know they came. So it's, it's really about like, how do you welcome people into the space and get them to feel like they belong there and that they know somebody there. And if they go missing that they're going to be missed. And it's really hard to do without putting like a lot of intention and, honestly, like resources into it, whether it's people or money, it's, it's all kind of the same thing. Yeah. I think 
there's a lot of advice nowadays, like you should build an audience, like get a giant audience. Whereas um, a community is not necessarily an audience. It's like people talking to each other rather than just listening to you. But I think it's super valuable because there's a sticky connection of like the people in your community. If you do what you're saying and like make sure they're welcomed and they feel missed if they're gone, they just develop these relationships with each other. And they're like probably not going to leave <laughs> because like these relationships are so important and hard to find elsewhere. Whereas with an audience, if like the only value you're getting is like a message that somebody's writing or emailing to you, like that's super easy to find elsewhere. And you could easily just leave and like no one's going to miss you. And so I think, you know, if you're starting a community, it's super important to do what you're saying and basically realize that like, yeah, the value comes from these connections, but you got to do a ton of work up front to make sure that people are forming these connections. And eventually oh, yeah. it becomes really scalable. Like eventually, I won't say that you don't have to do very much, but like, you know, with audience audience building, you always have to be putting out content. You can never really get off that treadmill. With community, you can eventually sort of sit back a little bit and people will talk to each other. With like these other organizations I mentioned, basically the people that they're training who have paid these membership dues are the ones leading the sessions. With Andy Hackers, we had like our offline community, which was all these meetups pre-COVID. We're having like 60, 70 meetups a month. And like, I didn't tell anyone what to do. Everybody just sort of did, you know, their own yes. scalable thing. And I think that's the value of community, like the scalability, but you, you can't really skip ahead. That's such a good insight because I think, I think community scales when the community scales itself. Like if you're trying to scale it as the one person pushing it forward, like it's probably not ready to scale yet. One of the things I think about a lot in this space too, is like as creators, we can look at the growth of the music industry and artists in that way as like where things can go. Because think about the Beatles. It had a ton of fans. They had an audience and the audience would go to the shows and like that almost looks like a community. Cause now you can have interaction with these other people, but you're still actually there to see the main attraction. The Beatles weren't like, how do I get my fans to talk to each other? That wasn't really the concern. But if you think about yourself as a creator and you are the Beatles in this world, people might be showing up for your work because they love your work. But like, how do you make sure that they're actually talking to each other? Uh, that takes some intention and design around the space because otherwise you're just like, hey, I've got an audience of 2000 people. I now have a, a tool that's a digital community platform. If I throw the two together, that doesn't make magic happen. They right. might come and they're like, where's where's Jay? Where's the attraction? And it'll be fun and exciting for like 30 minutes. And they'll be like, okay, where do I go? Where's, <laughs> where's the food? Right. I'm bored. That's, that's it. And that's that we're going to see a ton of that over the next two years as people just throwing their audience out of platform, not understanding why it isn't sticking. Right. And people are going to get a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah. It's like when I go to a conference, uh, often it's a combination of like audience building and community building where people will essentially come for like a talk ostensibly, but then the talk's over and you go into the hallway and that's kind of where the community is. Everybody's talking to each other, entertaining each other. But online, like that doesn't happen. <laughs> like you send a newsletter and you're like, all right, everybody came to my talk. They read my newsletter. And then I got like a link to a forum. But, like no one has any real reason to talk to each other. They're not going to naturally bump into each other like they would at a real event. I mean, that's one of the things that makes Twitter great. And why people love Twitter is because it seems easy to bump into people and send them a DM. And it's like, oh, wow, we're actually communicating now. That, that's what happens at in-person events a lot of the times. It's like, oh, there's a speaker here and I can talk to him access is there you can have serendipitous access if you put a little for effort forth it doesn't happen as much in most online spaces so let's talk about tools for a bit because you are building the smart passive income community on circle which is a super cool tool for community builders uh you built unreal collective on slack for the most part and i guess zoom calls as well and then what else we got we got twitter which is like hard to build a community on but easy to build an audience on and then there's uh clubhouse which i don't know if, if you've used but it's obviously been blowing up all year i think they've got like one to two million active weekly users or something crazy and they just got like a billion dollar valuation and everybody thinks clubhouse is potentially the future 
of uh, community. So let's talk about maybe Twitter. Uh, you've got like 5,000 Twitter followers. How are you using Twitter to build an audience, to sort of feed into your, your role as a creator? I hadn't really thought about it very intentionally. Like I just kind of felt like I've got to exist on these platforms for a really long time. And luckily I did build an account in like 2009, which is relatively early for Twitter. But I haven't really put a ton of effort into it until maybe the last year and more even so like the last couple of months. And honestly, what I'm realizing is, you know, you, you look at the way people use Twitter and like you see some clear patterns of, oh, if you do this type of content, if you have these types of threads and you talk about these types of things and you get retweets, you get picked up, you get follows, yada, yada, yada. It just doesn't fit for me, which sucks because like I can see the recipe and I get the recipe. I'm equipped to do the recipe. But right. I, just, I, I, you don't I, like it. I don't want to do the recipe. <laughs> so for for me, I'm I'm treating it more like a community now. Honestly, the things about community are like ask questions, get people's opinion, engage with people, and they engage with you. Like be helpful to people, connect people. You can do all that on Twitter like totally. really really well, just the same way that you would in your community. And so that's that's more and more what I'm trying to do lately. I love the the, the question based approach to Twitter because if you ask a question where it's obvious that the responses will be valuable to read through it's a win-win for both people who want to participate and who want to just like read. So if you're like, Oh, how did you get your first like 10 users or something? And everybody shares, like, it's not just cool to share because like you can share and maybe promote your product and what you're doing, but also you want to like read through that as somebody who's reading and almost no one is using Twitter that way. It's super rare. Almost everybody's using Twitter to like build an audience for themselves rather than to sort of connect their yeah. followers to each other. Uh, it's actually could be helpful. Like you can crowdsource things super quick. I, I genuinely asked like yesterday, I'm like, how do you guys turn your brain off at the end of the day? Because like, we're all living and working in the same space. So like when the day's over, how do you know? And how do you like switch off? I have a very hard time doing that. And I got a ton of responses and a ton of ideas. And that was really great. What are you going to do? I really like the approach that a lot of people said of like, mark a clear time at the end of the day and then have like a ritual at that time. Mm. And that ritual could be like, I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes checking my email to make sure there's nothing super fire based, but I'm going to close out chat. I'm going to close out everything else. Um, a lot of people said like, just leave your phone in the bedroom, which like is the obvious answer. And like, yeah. I should do that. I used to be able to run because it was warm enough here in Ohio that I could run after work back in the good old days of not winter. Yeah. And that was like a good transition. So that was really great. And it just feels more natural and more helpful to me than to be like, I'm going to construct a 12 tweet thread of me <laughs> proselytizing something. Like I get that it works and it could be valuable, especially if it's like thoughtful and, and it's like genuinely helpful, mm. but it's just not the format that I, that I like. No, it's not super fun. And I know, I know a few people who are really good at Twitter threads and they talk to each other about how to be good at Twitter threads that are going to like maximize retweetability. And like none of them are having a lot of fun writing these things. And I think they get shared really widely. They have like mass appeal because so many people are just reading through Twitter. And if you come across like an entertaining story or like a bunch of like random advice, like, yeah, I might as well retweet it. But like, I don't think that necessarily translates into like, if you're tweeting these, it's super fulfilling or that the people who follow you are going to later on, like, feel like they want to buy your products or use whatever you make or talk to each other. So I'm kind of right there with you. It's It's hard to use Twitter that way. And I think the people who do, it's it's hard not to compare yourself to them because like you have the same unit of measurement, like how many people follow you or how many retweets that you get. But like ultimately you're doing different things. And if someone's got like a hundred times as many retweets as you're getting, but they're doing something you don't want to do, then like you're better off just like not comparing yourself to what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I, I actually loved your take on it recently too, where you're talking about like if you're building a Twitter audience to maximize optionality for optionality's sake, like it's just not 
necessarily useful or serving you. Like why are you doing it? It can be a huge time suck and it's, and it's not an asset that builds on itself over time. You know, like if you put that same amount of effort into writing a really great essay that maybe is, is constructed for like a key search term. Uh, the last, the last like big essay that I wrote was about building community and why I'm really bullish on circle. And that has brought me so much value and staying power and, uh, has introduced like really interesting people into my life. Um, and like actual monetary reward too. So I, I want to tend towards that. Like if I'm going to put effort into thinking through something that has a bunch of structured points, I'm going to put it on something that can live evergreen and, and continue to generate some sort of benefit. So what do you think about clubhouse? Have you, have you used it at all? I kick myself every day for not spending time on it. <laughs> well, you don't have to do that. <laughs> because, well, and to, to deconstruct that, like, I love audio and I love yeah. podcasting. I think I'm I think I'm a pretty good speaker and it just feels like this plays my strengths. And I've been looking for years at what is the thing that's going to pop up that I can hop on early and build this unfair advantage that so many creators tell me that they had when they started writing in 2008. And like Clubhouse is the clear answer, the first one that's come around in a long time. And I'm just not spending time on it. And I don't know why other than like, it seems like a big time suck. And it's hard to go from a mindset of like, I want to craft 45 to 60 minute, highly produced, beautiful pieces of dense, useful audio for creative elements. But then I'm also going to go on clubhouse and just like just speak talk. for two hours with no clear agenda. <laughs> I just don't get it. But business owners I talked to were just raving about how incredible it's been for like introducing them to a larger audience and building their audience and I knew it would come someday and here it is. And I know that I'm adept, like I, I'm suited for it, but I can't get myself to get into it. I'm skeptical that people are building really big audiences on Clubhouse. I think they're building, well, let me change that. I think people are building big audiences on Clubhouse that stay on Clubhouse. I'm skeptical that people have built big audiences on Clubhouse that have like then translated into like thousands of podcast listeners or Twitter followers or mailing list subscribers. Maybe a few people have. My thoughts on it are this. I've been spending some time in Clubhouse. Number one, it's live, which is super fun. Like if you were to pop in and just try it, like you probably get addicted and it would be a time sink for you because just being able to like on demand, pull a few of your friends into a room and have a conversation about anything you want is super addictive. And it's really hard to do that anywhere else. Like even for you and I to talk, we're like, oh, let's schedule a Zoom call and put it on the calendar and shift it on Clubhouse. It's no like, oh, Jay's online. Let me ping him. We just start talking. That said, if you build an audience on a live platform and you go live, like a very small percentage of them actually ever see what you have to say. So like on Twitter, like I've got like 38,000 followers. If I tweet something, I might get a 50,000 impressions. Like not only does my audience see it, but like a bunch of other people end up seeing it on clubhouse. It's like 1%. You could have a million followers on clubhouse and you're going to get like, you know, 10,000 people see it. You're going to have a thousand followers and you get a hundred people who are going to see it. And it's just not, you know, 10 people are going to see it. And it's just not like, that's kind of how live is everywhere. YouTube. I've seen a lot of YouTube channels where people have like, I don't know, hundred thousand subscribers and their live videos have like a thousand views. So if you are used to doing things that aren't live, I think Clubhouse is going to be kind of a kind of sad because such a small percentage of your audience actually sees those things. And then it's totally ephemeral. People don't save or record Clubhouse conversations. And then unlike a podcast, yeah. they join in the middle of it. So you're like halfway through talking about something and like people don't even know what you're talking about and they join up and it's yeah. kind of disorienting and confusing. And then uh, I know I'm just like, it's like a nonstop hate fest right now. <laughs> there are good things about it too. I am I'm also interested to see like what what is the impact on podcasting generally because I think audio is kind of like a zero sum game like you only have 24 hours a day you're only going to dedicate so much time to like listening power so if 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 
Clubhouse continues to pick up and that's like the audio people like to tune into as like their form of radio and intimate audio connection. Is that going to tank certain podcasts? I don't know. Or will they rebound and say like, this was fun for now, but like, I actually do miss people respecting my time and attention with right. like thoughtful, highly produced Prepared conversations. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about Clubhouse is the fact that like there's so much guest participation. So even if you do prep a lot for a Clubhouse call and you bring on like the right people, people will kind of get upset if you don't bring random people onto the stage. And then like random people onto the stage usually aren't that well prepared and they don't really often add a lot to the conversation. Like it's like one in 10, you know, really add a lot to the conversation. So as a listener, I'm much more into podcasts and audiobooks where I know I'm going to get a particular thing. But as a speaker, I like Clubhouse because it's so on demand and so easy to just jump into a conversation. If I was going to jump into Clubhouse tonight and I wanted to be a guest in a conversation, mm-hmm. how easy would it be for me to be able to get into conversations that are happening and, and contribute? It depends entirely on who your friends are and who you know. So if you know someone on the stage and it's a topic you want to talk about, uh, what will happen is that they'll probably follow you and you'll show up in the little following section. And there's a pretty good chance they'll be like, oh, Jay's on. Let me invite him up to the stage. I know Jay's a smart guy. He's got stuff to contribute. If you are joining rooms where you don't know anybody, then it's going to be hard because you're going to be one of like, you know, 100,000 people who like might be raising your hand or trying to get on the stage. And like some rooms are super open about it, but those are often like not the rooms you want to join anyway because it's just a bunch of random people talking about stuff. Like you want there to be some curation, like for Unreal Collective, your community, like it's curated. Like not everyone on earth can join. Like certain people can join who you know have a lot to contribute. And Clubhouse, like any random person with like a millionaire get rich quick scheme can get on the stage and just start, uh, you know, bloviating about whatever their strategy is. And it's not that valuable. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I just can't, I don't know if I can get into it. Well, what about, let's talk about Circle then. Circle is a platform you've been raving about. Uh, it's a community building platform. It's kind of like, you know, you've got different options. You can use Slack, you can use Facebook groups, you can have chat-based communities on WhatsApp or Telegram. Uh, and then Circle is like a fully-fledged kind of like web-based community. Why are you so bullish on, on Circle? Well, first and foremost, it's because the team understands me as the customer and as the user they know my motivations and they know what i want out of the platform and they have experienced building platforms like that before like they come from teachable so i know that the team knows the use case it's my use case they know what i want and the things that they're going to be shipping and shipping quickly are the things that i care about about three years ago when i was doing unreal and i was thinking about it as a potential community and like place where i make a a living I was really frustrated with my choices of what software to use. Slack has a clear limit of how many people can be in there and how it can stay tightly knit as it is. I think you I think you get beyond 200 people on Slack, I wouldn't be able to have the same relationship with them that I did with Unreal. And the other options were like Discord, which is Slack for gamers, or Discourse, which is like a kind of a gnarly old school looking forum, but like very functional, but felt very out of workflow and mighty networks which actually seemed like it should be a great solution so i'm sitting here as like a community builder that really wanted a different platform i i thought about building it this is like the closest i came to getting really into indie hacking was like okay let me just build something and i pulled together like the smartest uh ux designer that i knew in town i brought together two incredible developers in town and like a really great strategist and we just whiteboarded all day i'm like here's what i want to do here are things that I want to do. Here are the things that we can compare it to. Like, here's what is great about a subreddit. Here's what's great about indie hackers. I brought indie hackers up. And I just couldn't come to a solution of like, why doesn't Mighty Networks work? Right. 
just use that. What would I build that's not Mighty Networks? And so I just gave it up. And honestly, like Circle is a forum software. It's not functionally much different than Discourse, but the UI is better. They understand this specific customer better. I know as they get into, like they just launched the, the iOS mobile app yesterday, as it moves into Android also, like that experience is going to be really good. I, I I know that to scale a community, you need something that is more searchable and threadable and can be broken down from like big into small. So a lot of what we do in, in SPI Pro, the SPI community, everyone in there is, an, is a member of SPI Pro. But then we start to segment people into different topic areas into different clubhouses actually is what we're calling them now and to into masterminds that are like real-time meeting groups so there are a bunch of different ways you can engage in small groups inside of this larger group and you can't really do that in slack effectively you can't really do that in other things like again mighty networks just should have worked but i could never get into it and i don't know why and now it's as they're becoming more of like a holistic business platform it feels like it's even moving away from the use case that I wanted and it feels kind of slow and almost like bloated. So circle just feels like the most directionally correct for me as a creator and the use case that I have. Yeah. You know, one option you didn't mention is Facebook groups, which I've seen a lot of people build communities on. It doesn't seem like it's tailor-made for communities. It's definitely not tailor-made to like break people down into these subgroups as you try to scale up your community and you know, you need it to still stay personable. In fact, almost none of these tools are, except for Mighty Networks and Circle. Like Slack is not made for communities; it's made for for companies. But there is an advantage to something like uh, a Facebook group that almost none of these options have, which is distribution. So, if you want your community members to be like active and to basically like just kind of in the course of their normal lives stumble across the conversations and things happening, Facebook group is a pretty good option because people <laughs> reflexively check Facebook and they'll see a conversation on their newsfeed and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm part of this community." Whereas with something like Circle or Slack or Mighty Networks or even any hackers, I have this, this challenge of like trying to get people to develop an entirely new habit to visit a community that's not in some place where they already visit on a routine basis. Yeah, I didn't I didn't talk about Facebook groups because I, I barely think about it. And honestly, the Creative Elements listener group is on Facebook because I wanted to learn what it was like. And I hate it. I don't hate the community. I hate like the product because yes, if you are not thinking about how do I make such a great experience that people want to show up, a Facebook group is a great solution for you because people are going to show up anyway, but there's no threading. It feels like chaos. You can have tens of thousands of people in there and you feel like, oh, it's a thriving community, but like there's 20 posts a day and they're all in a single feed. Uh, it's on Facebook, which to me is its own <laughs> just detriment. Cause I don't trust, like, I don't trust the company. I don't trust yep. where it's going long-term. The younger generation doesn't have Facebook yep. and it's just rented land. I think, I think people have more respect and appreciation for a private space that they think the creator has a lot more control and, and authority over. But yeah, I mean, Facebook is really great if, if you want something that is just going to show up in people's faces, whether they are thinking about it or not. So we've talked about scalability and growing communities, which is tough because you got to probably have to figure out a way to break it down like EO is done, like YPO is done. But there's other like things that go into community scalability as well. Like you're one of the very few people to have sold a community that you built. I did it with Indie Hackers, Stripe owns it. Ryan Hoover did it with Product Hunt, which was acquired by AngelList. And there's been like a few others, but I think the vast majority of communities are like not that scalable and also like not that interesting to acquirers. And so when you posted about selling and joining uh, the SPI, 
community on any hackers. Like I had a long comment about my thoughts on like getting a community acquired, like what's it look like and why most acquirers typically don't want to buy uh, a community business. And a few of my points, probably the biggest one is that it's, if you think about an acquirer, they're typically, they're, they're basically an investor, right? They're not just buying something because they want it to stay the same size all the time. They're buying something because they want it to grow and scale and get bigger. And unlike a software product, a community actually changes in nature when it gets bigger. You know, it tends to become a little bit less personal, a little bit harder to run, a little bit more unruly, a little bit less like exclusive, a little bit less curated with who's in it. What are your thoughts on, on having a community be acquired? There are there are a couple of cases you could make. You could look at the really bullish case and say, well, a paid community is ARR, like it's it's MRR or ARR. It's it's recurring revenue potentially that could be like an incredible investment. But we looked at it more so from the standpoint of in a paid community, the product you're selling and the benefit people are getting is out of your hands in a lot of ways. Like it's coming from user generated content and relationships and and things that are happening in there. And so it's a really tricky line to toe because there are likely some members of any paid community that you would be happier to let them have it for free than for them to leave because they are so valuable as a community member. And Unreal is this incredible community. We weren't looking at it as like an immediate profit center of like, well, this is what we can expect in membership dues. It was more about these people are really well connected to each other. We know they are incredible community members. We want to make an even stronger base of SPI Pro with some incredible, incredible members who are the same type of person. And I, I told the Unrealers, I'm like, you know, everything we're doing here, we're going to be able to do at SPI and even more so because we have more resources. We, we get a whole other, you know, we have a community manager, Jillian, who's incredible. So there's two of us now that our whole focus is making an awesome experience for you. And not only that, like you're in this space, but we're expanding the horizons because frankly, the average SPI member is further along than the average Unreal Unrealer was. So like it's, it's, it's all upside, but it's scary. First of all, Slack to circle is kind of a, a culture shock. It's a very different community experience and it's scary to move, but it, it was, it was scary for me to tell these people like, this is not like the investment of, we know this is going to immediately turn into membership dues. We didn't require a, a credit card for them to get in there. We're like, we're giving you access for a year and let us prove to you over the next 12 months that you want to be here. And this is an even better experience than what you're used to. And if you want to continue membership after that, awesome. We'd love to have you, but it's hard because a lot of communities like they're, they're fragile that they, they, they have a lot of ownership over their space. And if you're like, by the way, actually I own this, this is not a co-owned space. It's, it's, it's a scary thing. And so I think you have to go into it with the right reasoning right? and not just like disappear. Like if I was like, Hey guys, they own you now later. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm in there every day. Like I'm yeah. genuinely still putting all my energy into making that a great experience. And now it's like, not only are you guys in here, you guys paid for the 12 week accelerator mastermind experience of unreal collective. That's a part of SPI pro membership. You can have that now, like just, you can have it. It's, it's all upside in that way. And we, we think that, you know, this is a, a really strong base to continue to build from of really kind, thoughtful, smart, generous people who want to give back to each other. I mean, I think about the communities that have been acquired, none of the founders of the community organizers just peace and said goodbye you now are property of the acquired. like all of us have ended up going to work and uh, because we're sort of a crucial part of the community and people 
like it's fragile. The community is going to have positive network effects. Where you get more and better people in the door and the community grows, but it can also have like negative network effects where people say this place is yes. dead. It's, it's going down the drain and everybody convinces everybody else to leave. And there's been a lot of really big communities that seemingly died overnight because you know, there's kind of a revolt among the people. And unlike in real life, where if you revolt against your government, like it's very hard to go somewhere else. Uh, online, it's super easy to be like, you know what, Dig sucks. We're all going to Reddit. Or you know what, like Andy Hacker sucks now. We're all going to whatever the new thing is. So you have to be super careful yeah. about not upsetting people. Man, negative network effects. I've never, I never thought about that terminology, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like with paid communities, because yeah, it can, it can go to zero really quickly. And so like as a creator of a potential community, like if you're thinking about having to be a paid community, you need to take really seriously your own investment of time and energy in the beginning to get things going and to continue to stoke the fire and make it an awesome place because there's no value there. If people aren't finding value there, it's, it's kind of a, you know, chicken and egg type of thing. So let's talk about branding real quick. Then I'll let you get out of here. Nathan Barry has been like a, a really big figure in the creator space well before he started ConvertKit which is a tool that a lot of creators use to send email. Like he was doing his own writing and blogging and had a newsletter and released books and et cetera. And he has one called authority where he talks about like, how do you brand yourself as a creator? And there's a few different ways you can do it. Like you can create something that's like uh, quote unquote larger than yourself. And you create some brand that's not you. So with like ND hackers, that's literally ND hackers, Corlin's not in the name, or you can, you can basically name it after yourself. So someone who's been super successful at doing that is somebody like James clear or Nathan Barry himself, where, Essentially, everything James Clear does is on jamesclear.com. Every blog post he writes is on his website. His books are authored under him, and people follow him because they really like what he's doing. And Nathan Barry kind of came down on the side of, like, you should name it after yourself because as you work on multiple projects, let's say you write two different courses and three different books, it sucks to have to create, like, a different website for every single one of them. And everybody, like, none of, like, the brand affinity sort of accrues from one to the other. Um, and so he just decided, like, that's the best way to go. The counter argument to that is like, how does it ever become larger than yourself? How do you ever, you know, escape from that? If you want to do something else, has anybody else ever buy that or acquire that from you? If like you're wrapped into the brand, like it seems like you're, that's inextricable. What's been your approach and how have you thought about this? It's been kind of a both, honestly, your name, your identity is something that you'll never separate from and that you won't sell, <laughs> you know? Right. So like, I'm really excited about freelancing schools, this platform that I'm building that is not me centric that I'm building as like, I think I can make an asset here. That's a cash generating asset that maybe could be sold someday. And, and just like very easily and very effectively and very like, there, there won't be like a lot of consideration outside of like people know like, Oh, it happened, but I'm still getting benefit from it because the thing is generating the value for me and, and not the person. On the other hand, I know that my connection to a lot of the people supporting me as a creator are supporting me as a creator. You know, like an interesting corollary here is like on lore at Nest Labs. She has a named thing, but like she is so central to that still. So in that world, like I don't I I'd be interested to talk to her about about that because like on one hand it's like, oh, you build a thing with a name and that should be its own thing. But if you're still so central to it, is there any difference? I don't know. So I I, I have like my courses. I have a couple courses under freelancing school that like that's an asset and I instruct them, but it doesn't really matter. I have a couple courses now that are on uh, a jclaus.com platform. My writing goes on jclaus.com. I'm thinking long-term, like I want to build jclaus.com as an asset that attracts new audience and, and people that I can help and will continue to do that. But that will evolve with me in, in whatever form or fashion. So I'm kind of hedging and doing both because I, I know I need 
and I want to personally connect with my people. I love that when I write an email every Sunday, I'm just writing to friends. Like I literally, I, it feels like I'm writing a Zanga post sometimes <laughs> and I can just be me and it's so easy and it, it lets you be more prolific instead of putting on like the freelancing school hat. It's, it's just different. That's such an interesting approach to do both at the same time. And also like a good point that you made that just because something is named differently than you doesn't change the fact on the ground that it might just be that you're central to it. So with Anlar, she's very central to everything she's doing at Nest Labs and the MakerMind community she's created. Uh, an opposite example might be someone like Lenny Rachitsky. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's got a very popular newsletter that's named Lenny's Newsletter. But if you look at how he runs it, he takes questions for like, how do you become a better product manager? How do you do whatever? And it's not like he's this super genius who knows all the answers. He like, he'll go out and find the best person and have them do kind of a guest post on that topic. So theoretically, even though it's named after him, a lot of the value is coming from the people that he's, kind of the curation that he's doing and bringing to the table. And someone could come in and basically do his job and not be Lenny. And you wouldn't know because it's not necessarily written in his voice every issue. It might be written in someone else's voice. So yeah, maybe it's less to do with what you name it and much more to do with how you run it. We haven't even cracked, we didn't even talk about your podcast and like all the cool stories you could probably tell about how you got, you know, Seth Godin and James Clear to be your first interviews and stuff like that. So hopefully I can have you on again, but maybe to wrap things up, like you've been through quite a lot as a creator. You obviously had your biggest year ever this past year. You've had an acquisition, you've got big plans for the future. Uh, what's your advice for other creators slash indie hackers, you know, people who want to make content or community and actually make a living for it online. What's something they can take away from your story? I think taking like relentless action. I don't think that I did anything special. I feel like every single day of my creator business has just been a struggle, honestly. Like it, it just feels like oh, this is all going so slowly. And I look at other <laughs> people around me and it's like, oh, they're doing one thing and they're doing it really well and they're going faster than me. <sighs> but like at the end of the day, progress compounds. So if you show up every day and you put in the time and you work hard, uh, you'll get to a goal line, maybe slower than some of your peers. And that's okay. Not everybody can be the breakout success. But um, if you, you know, expand the surface area of your luck, some things happen. Yeah, I like that. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find more about all the different things that you're doing, about uh, what you're doing at SPI and your courses and, and your content and podcasts as well? Let's go to Twitter. Go to at uh, jklaus on Twitter. I'm also at jklaus.com. Pretty easy to find if you search for me, uh, but we'd love to hear from you. Cool. I'll put some links to that in the show notes. Thanks again, Jay.